Welcome to the Taiwanese Diaspora Podcast, where we use personal storytelling to connect people of Taiwanese heritage from all around the world. I am Cynthia, and I'm excited to use this podcast platform as a way to explore what it means to be Taiwanese X. This is episode 32. 大家好,欢迎收听台湾人网络广播,我是阿秀,用这个平台来跟华侨华裔的台湾人聊他们的生活过程和未来的梦想。这是第32集。I'm thrilled today to invite David Tan to the show. We talked about a number of different topics, and I'm not going to do it justice by trying to simplify it into a one-liner here. So... If you're interested in educational inequality and ways to address it, please listen to the whole episode. At the core of the discussion today is around identity. David himself is a third culture kid. He taught at an inner city school in Detroit for a number of years, helping facilitate the space to help kids of immigrants be able to talk about what it's like being from here, but also being from where your family's from. And he also answers the question of why Detroit no longer has a Chinatown. David is now an international school teacher and is working with third culture kids to help them build a vocabulary on talking about their experiences living abroad. David. 然后他大学毕业之后，决定想要当老师，就在Detroit教了四年多，大部分都是移民到美国的学生。后来就决定想要到国外教书，然后现在在越南的胡志明城市当国际老师。You know, introduce yourself like with your name and then where you are currently, where you've lived. Um, and some of the things that interest you. Okay. We can make it more education heavy if you'd like. Sure. Is it okay if my Chinese is not great? Yeah. Platform <laughs> to practice if you want. Yeah. Um, my name is David Tan. I was born and raised in Akron, Ohio. I am an Ohioan by birth and heart. Uh, and I lived there till I was 11, lived in the Burbs and uh, Hong Kong. Uh, around that time, my father's job, well, chemical engineer, and got moved an expatriate assignment to Hong Kong and attended international schools, Hong Kong International School and International School in Shanghai, where I graduated. I moved to Shanghai when I was 16 for 11th and 12th grade. And uh, then my parents moved back to the U.S. and picked Michigan. I ended up uh, going to Ohio State. And... Um, you know, majored in political science, international relations, and Chinese. Thought I was going to be a lawyer and realized that I didn't understand education inequality and I didn't recognize, um, I guess, the privilege that I had in my fantastic education, um, both in the U.S. and abroad. So I decided to pivot and um, get my master's in education where my parents were at at the time in Michigan. They subsequently moved to Louisiana, so the trend is that they tend to move away when I tend to move somewhere. Maybe some would say they're running away. Some would say that they're preparing the way because they get me in-state tuition wherever I go. Yeah, so I I wanted to, to help people that were not as fortunate as myself. So I 
got that master's at Michigan, um, student taught in in Detroit, and then ended up teaching at a charter school in Detroit for four years. Uh, Cesar Chavez Academy, and um, it was eighty five percent Latino Hispanic, um, low socioeconomic school, fantastic community um, in Mexican Town, Detroit, in which I speak not a lick of Spanish. Um, you know, going in there with all of my Chinese knowledge uh, definitely helped me out a lot there. And then uh, eventually moved out to Abuja, Nigeria, where I taught um, at the American Alpha School of Abuja, capital of Nigeria, for two years. And now I'm currently in Vietnam. I'm teaching at Saigon South National School. And I've been doing that. This is my third year, and I'm for a fourth. So I kind of grew up all over the world, really. And as a, as a Taiwanese American, kind of trying to figure out what that meant for myself. Still an ongoing process of um, kind of the various identities that I have um, that, that are that are at play. And I think overall, it helps me connect better with students, figure out their journeys, as well as to normalize the idea of not knowing where you're from, or maybe the shame of not knowing their culture as well as their parents. And so those are all things that I'm really passionate about. I also love food, so I love being in Vietnam an extrovert so I externally processed so that was the entire external process awesome thank you keep going okay so I'm gonna do a very dumbed down version in Chinese Shanghai, 高大學在Ohio State University,也上了研究所在University of Michigan,就收某幾個經濟地理跟怎麼怎麼教教書,我在底特律教經濟跟 到了四年，啊，我四年以后，爸妈问我要不要调到回回外国，是在可以教像我一样以前以前一样的学生，啊，可以教他们可以，啊，可以，去去教他，他问我们要不要啊，调到外国教，我说可以。所以我就第一站我教到非洲在南基利亚那边教其实我在南基利亚的时候我的中文可能是最最进步吧因为有一些中国的小孩的父母请我去那边去他们家吃所以还是进步了一点我在那边也是教经济跟地理 
在非洲招了两年，啊、呃，再调到啊、呃、越南，我现在正在招在一个 SSIS 一个学校，啊、呃，是一个台湾开的国际学校。That was fantastic. Yeah. That was like a much longer Chinese introduction when you were like, I don't speak Chinese. Well, it's not great. It's just like I don't have the vocab or the fluency. I think that was excellent. Oh, good. All right. Okay, so where do we start? Of the many places you've lived, what do you think has had the most influence on what you're doing now, or what you want to share with the international community? Um. Hmm. So, if I were to have to pick a place where it was more of like that, that foundational kind of eye-opening. Area it would have been Hong Kong, and that's just because I I grew up in a small town, like suburban, very Caucasian area, and、uh, then I moved to Hong Kong, and I was like, I've never seen this many Asian people in my life, and、uh, and then like it was interesting because when I was in Hong Kong, I became very American,、um, and I never felt super American when I was in the U.S. Like、it's like part of my journey was like I, I, mean, I didn't really know what ethnicity I was, or like didn't understand race really until I was like second or third grade. I just thought everyone was the same. I never really looked in the mirror, so、um, I just was like, oh yeah, my parents are a little different, and like, I don't know if I'll ever figure out this chopsticks thing while I'm six years old, but you know, maybe one day. And、uh, I think Hong Kong was like the amalgamation of all those things, like where I was like, all right, I'm gonna learn. I use chopsticks for the first time when I'm 11, right? I'm gonna like, I'm gonna try to learn like my parents' mother tongue.、Um, my parents never taught us Taiwanese.、Uh, my brother and I think it's、uh, I have an older brother. We we think it's because they they could talk trash about us、um, so we could understand them. So they, you know. But、uh, just trying to like learn, and like Hong Kong was cool because they they taught us traditional Chinese as a foreign language. It was pivotal in the sense that I felt like I had a safe place to grow as Asian American abroad,、um, around a lot of other Asian people who were may or may or may not have been Asian American, and then I like ran into a lot of like, I was like, whoa, there are white people that are not American. That was like different. But I, I guess the the biggest impactful parts were actually、um, the trips that I was afforded to. Able to go to、um, go on because like part of the graduation requirements in middle and high school were to go on these, these culture trips or these service trips or and and it, I mean it's crazy because because they were required my father's company paid for them and so I got like trips to Macau and to Xi'an and eighth grade I I got a trip to to Vietnam so actually in two thousand and three. I went to Vietnam, and just as it was opening up, for reference, the exchange rate currently is twenty three thousand three hundred fifty dong、um, to one U.S. dollar, and when I went, it was eleven thousand dong. So, like, it was it's Vietnam was just opening up, and it was so different. And I think like the education system at Hong Kong National School was very it was it was it was challenging, and it was. All about giving us different viewpoints, and I think, like 
one of the things they had us do was crawl the Kuchi tunnels where the Viet Cong fought against like the Viet Minh and like we literally had to just like I'm sitting here with my disposable camera you know they had those back in the day and and I had to like it was, of course it was out of film and but I was just trying to like use it for flash because you couldn't see anything inside and so you would just see flashes and it just felt super like claustrophobic it felt like we were in there for forever but maybe it was only like 100 yards and but it's still long it was i i feel like they're shorter now like my friends have gone recently and it's not that long uh and then when we sat through like anti-american propaganda and i was like what is this just never experienced it and i think it was super eye-opening so i was like i just never knew that could happen there's just bias i never understood and then it made me question my own stuff because my one of my teachers was a vietnam veteran who was like against the war and so he gave a lot of perspective. All in all, it was a fantastic experience. Even though I got mugged on Windway Street at that time, not like physically, some guy came up to us. He was like, "Like, oh, where are y'all from?" We're wearing our like Hong Kong international school jackets, wearing all these like track suits, and we're like walking out of the five star hotel or whatever. And he's like, "Oh, you, oh, you live there?" And we're like, "Yeah, I'm from Hong Kong." And then he like pulls out a knife. And he's like, "Give me some money." And so like, we didn't even understand like money, right? We're like, okay, well, here's twenty thousand dollars. Like, just walk away. But I remember um, sifting through a journal because I remember our our chaperone was like, "Well, that's an interesting experience. I'm glad you're safe. So you should journal about it." So I definitely did. That's so crazy because I go to Winway now, and I'm like, I just can't believe I was here so long ago. And there's a lot of different experiences coming together. Like going to this water park that's still there now, and they're like, "Wait, I was totally here." It's crazy, but I guess Hong Kong was a place where I experienced so many things that I didn't process at the university. But if I didn't experience them, I wouldn't have been able to delve into my ethnic identity as an Taiwanese American, or just as like as well as a third culture kid that I that I became, and like kind of seeing like. Like all the Filipino maids in Hong Kong, like every Sunday, where they would just like go everywhere. And then um, because they had their day off and just seeing like wealth inequality, hearing like different accents and listening to Jay Chow, falling in love with Taiwanese pop and Wang Li Hong. Just because like Hong Kong was this, this mix, right? It was, it's, it's not China, yet it is China. And in some ways, it's similar to Taiwan in that sense of like it's caught in this in between sometimes. So, you know, understanding the terms like, oh, homie is, is pineapple, but bolo is also pineapple. And it also provided me the first time in my life, my ability to visit my, my grandparents and aunts and uncles in Taiwan. So Hong Kong was this big experience. Like my whole life, I had just been in the U.S. And then all of a sudden I'm in Asia. And all of a sudden I'm so close to like Taiwan, my place of my ethnic heritage, like or my cultural heritage, my parents and all that kind of stuff. So without that, I think Shanghai experience would have not, like I wouldn't have been able to flourish so much in Shanghai. I wouldn't have been able to bring all that back at Ohio State and to like talk about what is assimilation or ethnic identity or what are those things that are at play. And I just didn't have the words to define them. Um, but but like, and that, and that, that relates to what I'm doing now, which is to, to give students vocabulary to define things that they don't know they're going through normalize the, the fear of not like knowing their, their culture or even 
if it turns into shame, right? Like that, it's it's not it's not something they should feel judged for or that like it's they they're living in a different world, honestly. And so, Hong Kong is was is and was all of those things for me. And it was, I mean, you're taking me out of suburban Ohio into seven million people. And now that you've come full circle, so I guess like in between, you've done and gone to a lot of different places. So. Okay, so Hong Kong had a significant experience for you and um, probably priming you to eventually also want to live abroad. But in between you, I kept come back to the U.S. Like, did you feel, despite going to an American school um, while you were abroad, what was the culture shock like coming back to the U.S. for college and grad school and all that stuff? Oh, man, yeah, it was like, well, so... I was very lucky because, like, my father's company paid for our flights to go back to the U.S. every year. I was able to return to my home state with in-state tuition and stuff, so I felt like it was, I didn't feel like an outsider coming back. But, like, <clears throat> you know, all the orientation activities, they'd be like, so raise your hand. Like, who, who, who traveled the furthest to get here? And on my thing, it says, like, Shanghai, you know? And I'm like, all right, well, um, like, I, and, and I know, like, the question of where are you from? as an Asian American is a very loaded question already because the perpetual foreigner stereotype and all those other things that are happening. But for me, it was additionally complicated because like, I, how do you want the five minute story? Do you want the 15? Do you want to get some coffee? We can like talk, right? Like, or, or what, what do you want? Right. Or do you just want me to say like, my parents are from Taiwan, you know, like, or I'm from Akron. And I'm like, what? What does that mean? You know, I was born in the same hospital as LeBron James. Like that, <laughs> I, that is true, right? Like that was that was that's a real and Steph Curry, right? So look, this is these are my small claims to fame. Um, what what kind of story do you want? And I think like the moving back was it was it was quite difficult um, to I, at least articulate my life as I knew it. Um, I think it was much easier for me to just put on the Asian American hat when I got back. And so then I just was like, okay, I'm Asian American for a while. And I kind of forgot that I lived abroad, even though I did. Like, I was, remember my first job, I was, because, you know, like, we didn't work in Shanghai. The, the visa stuff was too crazy. To, my dad was like, no, just get, get some job experience when you get to the U.S. And so I did. Um, I worked as a barista, and I made smoothies, and I, you know, food service at, at, at our dining halls and like, gym areas. And so... I remember one of my colleagues asking me, like, oh, so, like, where'd you go to school? And I was like, oh, I went to school in, in, in Shanghai. He was like, Shanghai? I've never heard of that high school. The high school of Shang. <laughs> Shanghai. And I was like, dude, that's totally just a city. <laughs> so, like, it was, like, so different, right? Like, um, and I, I, I also always, like, wondered if, like you always have that FOMO, right? Like I remember growing up watching like One Tree Hill or like whatever being like, what is that what I missed? Like, like not knowing I was having these great experiences like abroad and, um, but always being like, I, like what is homecoming? Cause no one came home cause we were like in Shanghai or in Hong Kong. Like it was so, it was, these things were foreign. We had prom, we like, like, but we didn't, you know, it, there were certain things. And I think a part of teaching in Detroit and other things was like reclaiming what high school would have been like, um, or more like recognizing like the falsehoods that I had believed about American high school or whatever. But yes, there was 
there was culture shock coming in um although it was less so because i have an american accent and i am american so like there's there were these things where i could easily blend in but it it was actually yeah i think it was a little painful to realize that i had to kind of forget about that part of my life because i just couldn't share it with anyone like when i went to my master's there was a guy um a korean dude and he great dude and he he was he would always like talk about himself growing up in ethiopia and everyone just had these images of like him in the fields with like the sheep and like whatever and then like when i actually lived in nigeria and i visited addis Ababa, I was like, dude, like, did you live in Addis? He's like, yeah, man, I live in like, like the biggest city. Like, like people just don't understand, and I just don't have the heart to like tell them. And I, I was like, dude, that's actually how I felt. Like, I never, I thought about it like that. You know, like people were like, so like, how was Hong Kong? And I was like, they're like, is it like Detroit? I'm like, I don't even know how to say. I think sometimes you need to be away from, like, the water to miss water. Like, you, you need to have some time to process things before you can go back and i think that's what my undergrad masters and the four years of teaching after was for me wow i love hearing about people's stories from abroad but i'm most interested in your decision to go into teaching yeah and talk some more about what it was like teaching at um a school in Detroit. Cesar Chavez. Yeah. Okay. Because I lived in Detroit for, or like outside of Detroit for about six months, a couple years back. Oh. And because you hear, like, this is like after the economic crash of 2008, right? Like, and everyone's like, right, oh, right. well, Detroit's like a really depressed city now. Murder capital of the city of the world. Yeah, yeah. You hear all this stuff. And then, you know, I go and live there for a while and I was, and I was like, well, it's actually, um, I mean, I lived in the suburbs, but I would go into Detroit because I thought that's like where the city life was. I mean, there were definitely houses that were getting torn down, um, you know, but also a lot of revival that was happening downtown. And so yeah. there's this, I think, extreme sense of, I guess, like the wealth gap is pretty wide or it's widening um, as of Huge. like yeah. recently. I don't know if that was always the case or not. But um, yeah, I guess like tell us more about your experience of Detroit and the corrections to stereotypes that you would. Sure, sure. You know? Yeah. Um, well, okay. So let's start from the switch to education. That centers on a conflict with my parents. Because um, I, I had always strung them along, and I feel bad for this. So I, I majored in political science and international relations. So the, the, the goal for them was always law. And so that was like that carrot that I'd always said, like, yeah, you know, like I'd be interested in that. And I, and I actually was like, I interned for the Ohio Senate. I had done stuff for Homeland Security. I just tried different things to get some experience. And like, I was a page in the Senate for like two years, like almost. And, and it just like, we were like, okay, but like, it wasn't necessarily always what I wanted. And then it's, it was actually Teach for America that opened my eyes. Like I didn't actually, I never did it, but I did it. I went through the application process. And what that did was like, give me the perspective of like, wait, there's like, like there's an inequality in education. I just never really understood, you know, like, like there's such an, a wealth disparity in the world, but like, like, so like I was, you know, in, in Shanghai and in university, everyone's always like leadership, leadership. 
right? Like, get you know, be a leader. And I was always like of the mindset, like, okay, but if we're all leaders, like, who are we gonna lead? Like, like literally, we're all leaders. Like, we we are all in leadership positions. So like, I don't understand. And then like, no one ever like gave me the perspective that once you go out into the world, like, people don't want to be leaders. It's so much more work and so much more responsibility. And so I was like, wait, I can like actually make impacts in this way. I was I was starting to understand like social justice more like understanding like historical and, and systemic perhaps inequalities that were present going to University of Michigan but then going into and and, and the fact that I teach I teach um, geography and I teach economics and geography is there's a lot of white flight in Detroit and the the suburbanization when you build the highways and the people were able to move out and then the industrialization that relates clear like the Rust Belt was why it's you know aptly called the Rust Belt, right? So the the decline of these these industrial cities, um, and that was where I wanted to teach. I was like, okay, so if I'm gonna do this education thing, let's do it where I feel like they needed the most. And 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 that is like local to me, which for me, even at that time when I was in Columbus, Ohio, I was like, Detroit would be a place that I want to try. Again, my my high school education was very well taken care of by the school and so i got into ohio state with a lot of credits so i I was able to triple major um pretty comfortably at ohio state so like i don't know how much you know about like education in the u.s but like certain so like every state determines their qualifications and certification and you actually have to take specific required courses by that state to become a licensed teacher in that subject so like if i majored in history there's like a 50 or 60% chance that I actually cannot be a history teacher unless I were to go back and take like seven or eight more classes because you had to take the right ones. And so luckily I was, I had a lot of credits because I just took a lot of different things I was interested in. And um, Ohio State actually never wanted to endorse me in social studies, but Michigan did. Michigan was like, we love your international, like, Kind of spread and breadth of edu- education and so like let's do it and then i had to like talk to my parents about like well so you know i'm not going to be a lawyer anymore i'm gonna try to do this master's in education even though i'd never stepped foot in a classroom or ever done any of that i'm just gonna like I'm just gonna do it yeah i was gonna ask if you did student teaching in college as part of like getting acquainted with like wanting to do totally teaching. did not i had done a lot of like mentoring programs and I, I'm definitely a <clears throat> very much like a people person, but I had never, I had no deeds done. I had no, like, I didn't know. <laughs> and so I was like hoping maybe Teach for America would be been a possibility, but they were like, well, we don't need social studies teachers. So I also applied for Teach for America and I also didn't get in. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Um, in hindsight, I'm super glad I didn't get it. The path that I went is one of the better ways, I'll say. I had that comment with my parents and, and they were, they had to like, be like okay well we don't agree but like we we will support you like okay well at least you're gonna get a master's so like you're not just being a bum or something i was like what does that even mean like people you don't need to get a but i had to get a master's because i wanted to become a teacher so my master's was a, a two-year and one program at university to, to switch into education and it was for people who knew the field their field quite well so i was actually the youngest one of the youngest in the cohort and there had people like 40, 30, 40 years old who are doctors, lawyers, engineers wanted to switch. So 
we did a full year student teaching while we did our master's program that was four terms. It was very interesting being an Asian American social studies teacher because everyone just assumed that I would teach math or science. Like everywhere I've ever been, they're just like, oh yeah, so how's it like teaching science? And I'm like, what did I ever say I taught science? Like, I mean, social science, I guess. Because my, my perspective, one of my favorite educators, um, he's currently a curriculum lead in Chennai, India now. He taught me AP Comparative Government Politics. And I was like, made that course alive. One of the, the case studies was China. We were living in Shanghai at the time. So I was like, yo, you're like learning about this country. That crazy. And, and I was like, what would it be like for me to have an Asian teacher that wasn't teaching me Chinese or math? That would be pretty cool. And so I'm like, if I'm passionate about this stuff and like the world is, the whole thing is like perspective and, and, and like, how does it, how is it relevant? Right. So I was like, I can, I think I can do this. And, and I'm super glad I stuck with it because I think Ohio State gave me an option. They were like, well, we can't certify you in social studies, but we can certify you in Chinese. You can be a Chinese teacher because you got a Chinese major. And I was like, please, I, my Chinese, I don't even know, you know, like, y'all heard it but like i i don't think that that was just the wrong move so um definitely happy i was able to teach social studies and then when i got my my position in detroit i was ecstatic like finally able to go to the city and like every asian american i that i know um in michigan they they're like oh i grew up in detroit but they never did like they all just grew up in the suburbs around detroit. it's like troy or something yeah troy or novi or whatever you know and and I, I just didn't realize I was walking into this huge suburbanization thing and also like a tale of two Asian Americas, right? The one pre-Chinese Decision Act, which is like the Chinatowns and then like the post-1965 Immigration Act, um, H-1B visa, kind of like my father kind of got into, came into the U.S. through. And so there's one that went straight to the suburbs and one that never got to go to suburbs. They were always in the city. So... There's just like, like as I was in Irma at Ohio State, I ran to like what they call like restaurant kids, right? These Chinese restaurant kids. And I was like, I just didn't know anyone like that because that just wasn't my experience. And they're like, yeah, I'm like a fifth generation, you know, Chinese American or something. And I'm like, whoa. Can you actually elaborate on that a little bit? I've, I've been reading a little bit about it in a history book called Making of Asian America. And I had no idea because we didn't talk about the Chinese Exclusion Act growing up. Yeah. And that was a total shock to me. Right. Because it, well, it looks like the U.S. is like doing the same thing, but with different other minorities throughout time. Correct. Correct. And I, I teach AP Human Geography, and we kind of go through a lot of that migration. We follow the, what, what's happening and the quotas and the exclusions that happen that essentially stopped in the 1920s and then continue to like with the Gentlemen's Agreement with Japan and uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act. Well, so I, I know a lot of this because I did a National Endowment for the Humanities project on the Chinese Exclusion Act and its impact on immigration in the U.S. And I did this in New York City um, at the Museum of Chinese in America, MOCA. And, uh, and this was before MOCA, like MOCA burned down last year. So like, I don't know how much is left now, but it was like, such a crazy resource. Essentially, like before the Chinese Exclusion Act, there was no real Homeland Security or like immigration authority, and there was no teeth to kicking people out of the country. So it was like that was the first piece of legislation that allowed that to happen. But that essentially, the Chinese decision that explains why there's Chinese restaurants in every small town all over the U.S. It explains why there's laundromats and all those kind of things. It explains Chinatown because that was like 
the place where Chinese people would help each other because they were coming for the gold rush initially, right? And and like what was originally a localized problem in California, quote unquote problem, which is like they were saying that Chinese people were taking the jobs they wanted or, or they're taking the jobs. And Dennis Kearney, um, well, how did it become like a whole national issue? Well, it was because California decided the elections electorally, like California was very significant. And so what became, what was initially a local issue became a national issue and people voted to, to exclude Chinese people, even though they, people on the East Coast had never met Chinese people. So it's like, it changed so much the trajectory of Asians in America. I didn't realize I was walking into that in Detroit because Detroit no longer has a Chinatown, um, but it did. I don't know what you know about like Vincent Chin and like he was a you know, Chinese American man who was on the eve of his wedding and he was at a bar and then I guess they got, got into an argument with I read about this. Yeah. Sorry, keep going, keep going. And, and and these two white men, one of them had just lost his job due to um the, the growth of the Japanese car industry. And so he had been laid off. I believe it was Chevrolet, I'm not sure. It's one of the big three companies. And so he was very angry at the Japanese people for taking away his job. And so he, he got in the fight with Vincent, who was not Japanese, but had just assumed. And then then they followed him outside and then they killed him. And so I have friends who are direct descendants of him. And in Detroit, which I just I had I heard and read about, but at that time they the you know the, the Chin families they went to the courts and they were like you know can we like have some justice like what is what's what is the response and at that time I believe the judge um, and this is a quote from my head so this may not be completely accurate but he said like these men are very fine men and it was unfortunate circumstance. And so in this case, the punishment should not fit the crime, but the punishment should fit the individual. And these people were actually good people, so they like never they never went to jail. And I think, so that happened like, I don't know, 30 or 25 years before I got there. And that essentially sparked the exodus um, in Chinatown in Detroit because they just felt like they weren't protected. And so they left in mass to suburban Detroit which is, again, why all the Chinese and Taiwanese people that I know that are from the area of Detroit are in Metro Detroit. And I was walking into all of that and falling in love with the city and recognizing and understanding the narratives that were at play before I had even stepped foot there. That's amazing. That's so fascinating. I want you to start a podcast about like social studies and Asian American history. You were at Cesar Chavez for four years. Yes. What were some of your biggest learnings as you were teaching um, in social economically disadvantaged? Low, low socioeconomic status. Yeah. What were your biggest takeaways, and then what made you decide to teach abroad? Because then it's like an, almost like a very contrasted sort of student population. Yes. Right? Yes. Very much so. So the school was was like ninety ninety five percent low SES which meant that, again, 95% of the student body was on cream reduced lunch. And I just walked into this school where a majority of the students, their meals came from the school and the school alone. Like, they just didn't have food at home or they weren't, like, they didn't have a bed at home. It was an inner city school. 
in in Detroit that was kind of flailing at that time. And I think they had they were just about to declare bankruptcy around that time too. Although they never formally declared the public private partnership that saved Detroit. Walking in as an, as an Asian American was very interesting because like, I mean, it's, I guess it wouldn't have mattered what ethnicity I was at the beginning because they just don't trust you, right? They're just like, when are you going to leave? Like everyone else is left in my life. So there was like, there was a lot of like, you just kind of had to go through a little bit of hazing and be like, yeah, okay. Like I might listen to some like white music. You know, I might listen, I might like have this accent of like, I'm, I'm not from where you're from. So I, I get it. Um, and I also don't speak Spanish. So like, that's also another thing. I know how, how, how painful it was to like, like, like you know, teachers would call on like Asian students' names. And, and I was like, I'm going to perpetuate this and I'm terrible. I'm so sorry. So please like correct me. I want to like learn. I think it was like about halfway in through my first year, I had started coaching. Well, I was learning American football. So I was a special teams coach. I wanted to just find different ways to build relationships with students outside of school. And that was one of my master's thesis kind of points. It's like, it's really important to build relationships with students outside of the classroom setting. And so I had done that. And I think at one point, one of my students made a comment and everyone kind of like paused. And they were like, no, Mr. Pan's a minority. And they were all like, oh yeah. Like, like he's not white, but he's not black or Latino Hispanic either. So like, at least he can get some of that. Like he understands. It was very interesting because like they rightfully so are very indignant against like stereotyping and, and all of like the, the negative uh, tropes that are associated with inner cities. Um, but at the very same time, their ignorance of like other ethnicities allowed them to like stereotype at the same time. Right. So they'd I'd be like eating, eating bread and they're like, that's sushi. And I'm like, dude, that's like actually a little offensive. And you're like, really? I never thought about that. And so it was like, we got to talk in ways that like, if I was like, my white colleagues would not be able to, right? And I think it all came to a head when I realized, because again, like 60% of the student body was Mexican. Um, there were like some Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, and like Colombians, but like, so it was, it was Latino Hispanic. I realized that the culture is very collectivist. It's a very communal culture. And that is something that I had been missing a lot since I moved back from Asia. And I was like, man, like, cause I, was, I was starting to be like, within the second or third year, they were like, they had accepted me. They were like, you know, you're part of our family. You can like, I've been into people's homes. I've taught, you know, their siblings. And one of like the, the like Mexican town is one of the bright spots of Detroit because sure it's low SES, but it's full of um, like first generation migrant workers um, who like care a lot about education and at, at the very least, and they have a higher proportion of like two, two parent homes. And so like, while there's poverty, but it was also like, there was support. I guess that moment that I was like, whoa, I'm here and I'm doing like really what I wanted to do. I, it was my AP human geography class. Actually, it wasn't. It was like all of my classes that in my third year, my grandmother had just collapsed in Taiwan. She was going through Alzheimer's and like a weak heart condition. And so my parents requested, so they had actually moved from Baton Rouge to Taiwan. They just knew a lot. They moved more than me. 
but uh, they had they moved and and they were taking care of her, and they were like, you know, this might literally be like the last time you might be able to see her alive. So like, like my principal was like, you know, one of his biggest regrets was not being able to see his family or see his parents. He was too busy with his career, so he's like, you should go. So I was like, all right. And so usually, um, more so in in at Cesar Chavez than any other school I've been to. I've uh, that since, like, when you're not there, like, your kids are generally happy. They're like, yeah, every day, you know, it's awesome. And they, like, cheer. So, like, I was a little, I was I was bracing for that. So I was, like, telling them, like, hey, so I'm, like, not going to be here for the next five days. And they're like, oh, what's up? And I'm like, well, actually, I have to go to my parents' birthplace in Taiwan and, like, take care or, like, at least get to see my grandmother. And, like, nobody cheered. Uh, not that like they're sadistic and they would cheer, but like that they 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 had listened to it. I have everything set up for y'all. Like don't worry about it. And as the bell rang, they lined up, shake my hand, and like wish me good luck, because they were connecting it with visiting Mexico, or visiting like it was almost like this wouldn't have happened if my if my grandmother was in like West Virginia or like with New York or something. It was like I was going out of the country, and as they would. Some of them were undocumented, some of them were documented, and like they just, they would sometimes would just have to disappear and then they would come back. And they were just like, you know, I really hope I'm okay with your family. And then that whole like communal feel, I was like, this is like Asia, but it's not, but it's like collectivist and it's amazing. And this was like this like connection between our cultures. Yeah, it was, that was like, this felt it felt like a family like every single one of my classes that's so heartwarming and i was like man if if i didn't teach at like this kind of school i don't know if this would be the same experience at all but like yeah like i brought them back stuff and they like loved Fumisu and they loved all these other things it was just cool because i had met their grandparents i had met some of their you know like it, w- it was like a unity in spirit of like collectivist cultures kind of deal and all that was happening in Detroit. And I think uh, at that time, it was helping me form my understanding of like the things that students or actually all people need in their life narratively. Like I always, I'd always known that like, okay, people always need to answer three questions, which are like, where, where am I from? Um, who am I right now? And where am I going? So like the where am I from as in like, you know, where was I born? The narratives behind that. And like, like and this and, and then like the who who am I now like the who am I working to become like who like oh, I'm Taiwanese American but I'm all these other things like I'm a teacher or whatever and then like where am I going is like what is the dream what is the goal in my life and like if the idea that one of those questions not being answered kind of paralyzes you in the current moment it's like midlife crisis or kind of somewhat explains why like adoptees always want to know where they're from not always but sometimes like to know where they're from and also like if I don't have a dream and goal for my life, I don't know how I'm working towards it, right? And so a lot of my students, what I was recognizing was that they were getting bogged down with the narratives of like, well, you're not from this country or you're not part of this country. And, you know, you're just like, this is the whole Trumpism or whatever. And and that this shame of like, you know, you're not part of Detroit. Like Detroit's like the African-American city. And, and I was like, I showed them demographically, like, no, like, the white flight as they left of course african americans continue to move in but the mexican and latino hispanic population in mexican town continues to grow and it's grown like like times five right it's it's like one of the largest 
concentrations of Latino or Hispanic people in in northern U.S. And so I was like, "You, this is your city. You should claim it. Like, like you you shouldn't, because a lot of them were just like they're so bogged down about like, oh, I'm not, like I can't claim this. So like I don't even care about my future because like, who cares? You know, like if, and they would never believe in the possibility of their success because they were always focused on where they were from. And they're going to answer that question. Yeah, so I realized I wanted to help them answer that question so that they could figure out where they were now and where they wanted to go. You ever read 1984, George Orwell's book? Uh, well, it's it's dystopian and it's like about government that's trying to control people. And one of the things they do is they eliminate words from the language. So they will eliminate words like freedom. So their people would never have a conception to think about freedom because there's no word for it. So therefore, they would never yearn for it because they didn't even know what that was. There's no word. And I think, like, again, the vocabulary is really important so that students can verbalize what the, what it is that they're wrestling with, what they're going through. And so figuring out, like, oh, well, you know, right now, like, there's assimilation and there's identity and, and neither is good nor bad, but it's just a spectrum and people are just trying to figure out where they are. And yeah, like, some of us have to code switch. Some of us have to do these things. And like, that's a skill. It's not like, you know, the, and these are, like, how, how do we define what is happening? And how do we talk about race outside of the black-white binary? Because none of, like, very few of them were black or white at the school. And as an Asian-American coming in, as a Taiwanese-American, I felt like I was uniquely equipped to begin this conversation in a room that was mostly black and brown. And they would trust me more to have that conversation than other staff, uh, any of my other colleagues. It was very eye-opening and cool. It, it felt very, um, I guess, affirming in the sense that I'm like, I love that I can grow because these are conversations I didn't have growing up. And I'm here not to teach in that sense. I'm here to facilitate and I'm growing in the process. So, like, you teach me. I'm just giving y'all the space to do it. And that was really cool. Um, but then on the, but then to answer your question, like, why did I leave, right? Because I, I love it, right? I, I would, like, I think about going back all the time. Like, it's, it was really amazing. However, professionally, I think it's a pretty common blanket statement. But, like, year one of teaching for anyone is they're, they're terrible. Like, you're not good. And I feel bad for my students. I feel like I did them a disservice because I'm just like trying to swim, right? But from year one, my administration always said I was doing great. So to year four, they were like, you're doing really great. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not drowning anymore, but I just don't. Like, is this actually, like, is what I'm doing in the classroom actually helping them with skills? And Because like, I'm, I've got really good at teaching content skills are really important and those are the ones that have merit in a variety of contexts so like in terms of as an educator i feel like like my ceiling was i already hit my ceiling at the school and i could continue to stay and build relationships with students which are really important because like they didn't have very many positive role models but in a sense like i i, I could have just stayed there for the next whatever until i retired like this is this it was a i could have done that but i just would have never grown and I wanted to know what worked. I wanted to know how to, like, if I had really bright students, I didn't know how to pull them higher because I was, 
I was so good at classroom management, but not so good at the teaching part. I was good at creating the space for them to facilitate things, but I wasn't necessarily good at giving students skills. And so I knew that most of the innovation in education was happening abroad. Uh, there was also the reality that I was, I have a master's degree, but I was making less than 40,000 um, in my fourth year of teaching. And so like, I didn't really get into this for the money, but there were some realities where I was like, well, I haven't seen my parents in three or four years. And like, I'm not growing at this job anymore. My goal is to become a better educator so that I can impact students in a variety of contexts. Um, and I would hope that I can one day come back and teach, teach in the city again. Um, but I want to do that as a much better teacher than I am right now. And kind of taking with me also a better understanding of the world because like, just because I had grown up there doesn't mean I knew much of anything like when I was abroad. So all of those things combined, I decided to search for, for an international placement. Not even a placement, it was just like I was looking for a good school that was willing to grow me. And my goal right now is to be able to witness as kind of like the best educational practices and be a part of that and embody that so that I can either teach other people to do the same or I can use it myself and go back. Because in many ways, the identity things that I'm doing abroad are very similar. And, and, and I believe that third culture kids like the ones I'm teaching myself, they have to ask a fourth additional question that I guess sometimes is answered by other people uh, or is, is that for other people is already answered. But for us, it's it's the question of, it's not just where are you from and who are you now and who, where are you going, but it's, um, it's, it's where do you belong? Because like we grow up all over the place. And, like, I have students who were, were born in Korea, but then have lived the rest of their life here. You know, and what does that mean, right? And when people ask you like the the from piece, like is it because like when you asked me, I'm actually glad you didn't ask me like which place do I like the most because it's very basic and it's also like it actually depends on the people. Like home is not a place for me. Home is what you what you can create. It's a double edged sword to be like a third culture kid because you can either view it as like a victim mindset where people always leave. You never belong anywhere because no one ever understands every aspect of you. Um, and so, like, that is really rough. And so I see a lot of people coming back to Shanghai or back to Hong Kong uh, looking for that community, but they'll never find it because international schools are very unique and kind of artificial in a sense uh, community. And uh, the other way to see it is, or, or I guess to, to recognize that it's actually, we've been building the skill of crossing cultures, crossing boundaries, crossing um, just like all sorts of these these human barriers with people. We didn't take a class on it, we lived it. And so we are very able to call everywhere home. And, and that's, that's an asset, um, but it's, you kind of have to work through a lot of baggage to get there because like, what does it mean that home is not a physical place or things like that, right? And, and what does it mean that for a lot of other people, it's, it was an actual place or that you didn't have friends that were for longer than four years or whatever. So I really love being here in Vietnam and, and in Nigeria because I was like, giving them my background and I was like, and I was you. You can fairly say, rightfully say that like your teachers don't necessarily understand everything you're going through because they like just grew up in the US and they just came here. 
but I literally sat in your shoes. I know I had Asian parents. I had whatever. And like, I grew up in this and, and that there was like something special to be able to share and to, for them to kind of see, and also for them to see an Asian American people social studies in Vietnam. These are, these are all things that I really, I value. Um, and I'm hoping for more like BIPOC educators. How can students want to be educators if all they've ever seen were educators that were not like them? And so I wanted to embody that as well, kind of break some, some of these like stereotypes in the process. Oh my gosh, David, thank you so much. This was such a powerful conversation. They think it's really cool what you're doing beyond just teaching, but thinking about these broader questions on how to get BIPOC teachers into classrooms. Facilitating creating space, I think, is a great way to represent what teachers can help do for students or how like bosses can do for their direct reports. It's not a one-way monologue. It's, it has to be more of a discussion, and, and right. you're using your, your role to be able to facilitate that. Yeah. I, I think additionally, the the other part is to show that I believe teaching is a process of being a lifelong learner is a part of that. And I think showing my students that I'm wrestling with my identity uh, and processing with them here and why I love the fact that I'm in Vietnam currently is because like the three identities that I carry with me three of the various ones, but specifically as an American, as Taiwanese American, and as someone of Chinese descent, these three countries, they all, they worked with Vietnam in very different ways and influenced Vietnam in very different ways. And I'm coming in with all three of those, Vietnam hates China in general, and there's like a lot of history there, uh, but they love Taiwan. And it's very interesting because in, in like Nigeria, there was like the One Belt, One Road, thing where everyone had to accept that there was only one China in order to accept funds. And Vietnam doesn't have to do that, even though they're so, so like, they, they really appreciate what, what Taiwan has done, but then also- It's interesting because like, Vietnam is communist still, right? Yes, right. And, and but their people really dislike China. And so they, they kind of have this past because there's like, I mean, my whole, the whole place that I live at right now is the whole Taiwanese development my school. Taiwan has done a lot here, it built a lot of good relationships and they're allowed to exist here and they were also the first political entity that actually like picked vietnam to invest in none of the other countries wanted to do it taiwan did it and they it paid off for them and so that's cool as a Taiwanese american coming in but then also the u.s had like the vietnam the u.s vietnam war right and ironically like john mccain was the one that fostered these relationships back to to which when he died, there was like a huge memorial for him in Hanoi. There was a Bung Obama in Hanoi and like all these things. So like all of a sudden, all three of my identities or that I carried with me are present and ever flowing in this country that is like so, it's growing super fast. And it reminds me of Shanghai back in 2004. And me being like, you know what? Like I'm here to witness this all. The late 90s and early 2000s were like the time when all the Taiwanese Americans were going back to Taiwan, right? That was like that big push. And it was almost like any ABC, this Taiwanese like could go back and become a pop star. That was that like that like phenomenon. And and I like feel like I missed it because I was just too young. 
but it was like everyone's cool. ABC was cool. Like it was American. It's all this that. Vietnam, it's happening right now. The Vietnamese diaspora is happening here, but it's it looks different because most people from Taiwan migrated to the U.S. because because they wanted to. Like it was like economic, but like Vietnamese came as refugees. So it was they were coming back to a country that's very different, and it's fascinating to be here to see it, and then to be like. With everything that I understand to help my students process a lot of that too, and they're recognizing that I'm processing my own identity growth as I'm living here, and I'm trying to model that for them because I'm like it's not like you're static. There's never a day that you wake up and you're like I am now mature, or I am now I've now made it. And I think that's really important as an educator. Like when students ask me something that I don't know, I will just say I don't know. <laughs> like just be like I'll find out for you next time. It's- Thank you. I think I've actually been to uh, like the outside part of your school. Uh, I was doing a grad school project in Vietnam for about two or three weeks, and we were working with oh, a factory wow. in the like the industrial area of mm-hmm. Ho Chi Minh City. the The company that we were working with is Taiwanese owned, and mm. so like the head of the guy, his kids went to an international school, and I think it was your school. No, what was the company called? Fumishing. Yeah. I guess that that entity owned the company that I was at. It was a metal stamping company. I see. I see. Yeah. I see. This was amazing. Thank you so much. I will let you go, but I feel like there's so much more to unwrap about your experience in Nigeria and what you're doing in Vietnam right now. So maybe if you're up for it, we can do another one after I get this one out. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. It's cool to be able to share a story and also verbalizing it is also processing it at the same time for me yeah no same this is part of why i'm doing the podcast <laughs> it started off as like a healing project for myself oh uh, yeah yeah well thank you for your time and your questions thank you so much for your time and thanks for making a difference in everybody's lives all the kids that you're teaching i appreciate it trying And that's it for today. Please send me a message on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at T-W-D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A or shoot me an email. It's hello at TaiwaneseDiaspora.com. And if you or other people you know have stories that they'd like to share on this podcast, please send them my way as well. Some of you have asked about how to support the show. So if you are inclined, go to Coffee ko-fi.com slash t-w-d-i-a-s-p-o-r-a to donate. All right. See you next time.